Okay, welcome to Cinelit. Uh, my name is Adam Marshall, and today we are joined by Derby filmmaker and filmmaker at large, world filmmaker. Global filmmaker. It's like yeah. global filmmaker, yeah. Well, I feel like it's damning with faint praise when I say Derby filmmaker. Like, he's from Derby, but he's a filmmaker. Uh, Mr. Dominic Burns, how are you, Dom? I'm great, mate. I'm great. And there's nothing wrong with being a Derby filmmaker, let's say. No, there absolutely isn't. Yeah, I teed you up for that, didn't I? Uh, it's, a, it's a genuine honour to come on and chat with you boys. I mean, I, I know how passionate you both are about movies. And also, um, Daryl, I mean, I think we've spoken about this before, but Daryl was the, the first person to ever interview me for any film I did uh, when he did the Q&A after we premiered my first film, Cut, at Quad. And, and, and I said to Daryl, um, just after the Madness screening, like... Because of that, and I've always had that connection with Daryl in films, I'm always super nervous whenever Daryl watches one of my movies. I really, really care about what Daryl thinks of it. You know, I'm generally kind of critic-proof in a sense because, you know, I respect critics. I've got nothing, no, no problem. But I don't, don't really care about reviews, genuinely, because after the kick in a couple of my movies got, you just get review proof. <laughs> but uh, with Daryl, I always care about your opinion, mate. That's the truth. So pleasure to be on the show with you, mate. No, I, say, I always remember that screening of Cut. I was sat next to Daryl while I was watching that for the first time before doing the, before Daryl was about to do the Q&A afterwards. And I remember leaning over to Daryl just, just before it started, I just went, what if it's rubbish? <laughs> 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 and uh, obviously it wasn't, and we were really everything turned out for the best, but that's some dawning dread of like, I'd never even considered that at the moment, but what if it's rubbish? <laughs> well, Daryl would have done a good job anyway, I'm sure. But we're not here to talk about your movies, Dom, this week. We're here to talk about your other passion, 80s cinema. We, we, we've been running at a, a, a quad for many years now, and after a few years, we got Dom to do uh, an 80s film night for us for, for about six or seven years, and we still dip back in once a year now for, for our annual Die Hard uh, double bill at Christmas. But 80s is a big, passionate um, area of film for you, isn't it, Dom? Do you know, everybody always says that your favourite films tend to be your formative movies, you know, when you're first growing up and when you're first understanding what movies mean to you. And some of the movies that are a massive deal to me in the mid-90s, everything from, you know, Pulp Fiction uh, to Saving Private Ryan, Braveheart, Good Will Hunting, all those kind of movies when I was kind of in my formative years, I've always adored. But I've always, always had just this immense passion for 80s movies. And it's funny because... I've got a few other friends that have the same passion and they're not all my age. You know, it's not necessarily, so I wonder whether it is an age thing or whether it's just something about 80s movies that even to the point where as ridiculous as this sounds, I feel like I can recognise the font of 80s credits. And if I'm like many times before the TV's been on mute in the background and I've just happened to glance over, not so much these days because it's all so programmed and planned now, but you know, back in the day when you turn on the TV and you wouldn't necessarily know what was on, and if, if the TV was on mute and I'd glance over and I'd see something starting with 80s font credits, I'd immediately turn the volume up and just watch it. And nine times out of ten, I'd enjoy the damn thing. It's a strange, inexplicable obsession of which you have taken the piss out of me relentless for years. <laughs> it really amuses you, my obsession with 80s movies. It's, it's, what, what amuses me is this, this, this sort of like, this quality control goes out of the window <laughs> when it comes to an 80s movie. <laughs> Any other movie, you'd be like, yeah, it was all right. It was a bit baggy in the middle. And then it was made in 84. Oh, it's a masterpiece. It was an absolute masterpiece. <laughs> this sort of like bulletproof aura around January 1980. December 1989. Any yeah. movie made in that is, is pretty- maybe we can temper that a little bit, Adam. And Dom Dom can enthuse about these films. Okay, well, well let's move on to the first film then. Um, I feel like we're, there's probably going to be a good consensus on this one. 
Um, there's the first one we're going to choose is The Burbs by Joe Dante. Joe Dante, big favourite among Daryl and myself, and yeah. I'm sure you too, Dom. For me, Gremlins was a major part of my um, early years. I was always more of a howling guy than I was a American Werewolf in London guy. So even even on, on those battle lines, I, I came down with Joe Dante as well. But we, we were hitting one of his, I guess, one of his smaller films from the eighties. I think one of his um, isn't isn't as well remembered as as let's say Gremlins. Well, yeah, we're looking at the burbs. I'm actually really glad you said that because just to sort of precede the uh, the, the five films that I've chosen today is that um, what I tried to do, I know you don't like, and I understand your reasoning for it, you don't like, you know, the five films you've never seen that you'll love kind of vibe. So it wasn't so much that, but it, I, I, my criteria really was for these five films was, firstly, films that were not obvious. I and mean, people probably heard of them. They might not have seen them. I tried to use like my girlfriend and a couple of my friends as a gauge that are, you know, they're into movies, but they're not like serious movie buffs. So I just tried to sort of gauge whether or not they'd heard of them or seen them. And um, so I tried to come up with five films that A and one weren't obvious choices, like obviously Gremlins. I love Gremlins, but it's an obvious choice. Everybody's seen it. I mean, they even put it on in the middle of lockdown. And again, that sort of leads into the other reason why I chose these five films is they're five films that I watched during lockdown more than once most on most occasions that just cheered me up. These aren't necessarily Oscar winners. They're not necessarily five-star critic-reviewed type films. These are just films that I put on and just make me feel great. And The Burbs is the ultimate example of that for me. It's just one of those movies where it's set entirely on a, on a single street. I really, really want to live on that street. I want to live, you know, opposite Corey Feldman. <laughs> I want to, you know, everything about it. It's just, it's just something about that film that just gets under my skin. And it's weird because there's like a... I'm like a member of like a, a, a group on Facebook, would you believe, that other fellow obsessies of the Burbs. You know, there is like a whole kind of cult thing around that movie. It even has the Burbs Day where you're supposed to sit in your garden and drink a few hundred beers. And it's, it's just something about that movie that never fails to cheer me up, make me smile. And also, I really think it's bloody skillfully made. I think Joe Dante is absolutely, you know, one of my favourite directors, same as you guys. I, I'm, I'm a massive fan as well. And I just think it's, I think it's brilliantly made. I think it's, if I'm right, I think it's right before Hank's kind of made that very brilliant transition from the comedies of the 80s into the more serious films of the 90s to be one of the, rightly so, one of the most respected actors working in the business now. I think The Burbs was, I think it's one of the last one, if not the last one, there was kind of The Burbs, Joe versus the Volcano. You know, it was kind of one of the last movies before he started entering into the more serious roles. Well, Joe Dante was saying about this movie, it was that blend of comedy... And 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 uh, and drama actor that he wanted for this role, and he, 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 he at the time said Tom Hanks is like a modern day James Stewart, and he fits this role perfectly. And obviously, Tom Hanks would go on much more to inhabit that sort of like James Stewart um, uh, realm, I guess. In the little batch of films that you've just mentioned there, with Big and so on, don't don't you think that? You you actually see you've almost got three stages to Tom Hanks' career. You've got the the the, the early um, sort of roles where he's known for comedy and uh, you know the those sort of lighter parts that he was playing. Then you get into the serious heavyweight Oscar-winning stuff. But 
it, it, as you say, it was almost an overnight transition, but I think it happened within a little batch of films that were all made together, and they're all the ones that you've mentioned. So it's it, it's an interesting sort of period for him as an actor, and it's 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 one of the the sort of fascinations of watching Hanks. I think is watching films like The Burbs and like watching Big and Joe Joe versus Volcano and so on, and and seeing how he sort of has a foot in both camps, you know, and how he's, you can see his development from comedy star to what he was going to become and what we know him for now. I totally agree with you. I think it's that classic term in in movies is that it took me 20 years to become an overnight success. (laughs) I'm pretty sure, I could be wrong, but I think he appeared in an episode of Happy Days against, like it was the Fonz rival in early days. You know, he's like, he'd been there and done that and worked his way up and consistently delivered, consistently delivered, and 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 these these movies, particularly the Burbs, are a kind of beautiful transition. But you know, if you weren't following his career closely, you could blink and you miss it. And he's gone from big to Philadelphia story, you know. And it's you know, in, in one kind of overnight swoop, as you say. I totally agree. I think I think it's actually. I don't think anyone, perhaps nobody's kind of analysed the Burbs in this way before. But it's actually a fascinating performance beat from Hanks if you watch what he does. It's there's so many subtleties to what he's doing. It's so brilliant. There's so many kind of little. I mean, I love this movie. I'm obsessed with it. But there's a lot going on, which I think Joe Dante's brilliant at doing, actually. You know, you can kind of watch his films and kind of look in the background and there'll be something happening that you've perhaps missed or someone will give a glance or a look or, you know, it's, 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 it's rich in depth. I, I genuinely think that. I'm not, you know, some of the films that, you know, we're going to talk about today are not rich in depth. They're just daft, fun films. But I think The Burbs has a lot to it. You know, I really, really... Um, you know, right from the, uh, even the soundtrack, you know, it's because Dante's famous for his love of films, obviously, and that, and that reeks in the movie, you know, all that kind of like 50s paranoid horror kind of influence of it all, you know, it's, uh, I just think it's a joy. And if nobody, if you haven't seen it before, I mean, it's so much fun, kind of horror, there's horror, very mild horror elements that, you know, that just keep you on, your, on the edge of your seat that little bit more. In fact, to sort of uh, change subject ever so slightly, I was actually... I was in a screening of a film in, um, a friend of mine had made a film in LA and um, we, we went and sat in the screening and I just happened to be uh, sitting next to Courtney Gaines who plays the, the ginger haired dude next to Yeah, yeah. Oh man, I could not, I couldn't resist it. I had to geek out on him. You know, I had to do it. You know, he's also, he's in a couple of movies that I really love. Obviously he turns up in Back to the Future and Memphis Bell, but I had to go the burbs on him. And he was <laughs> a lovely dude. He didn't mind at all. You know, he sort of chuckled at me, you know, geeking out on him, but yeah. It's um, it's a film that's always uh, very, very, very high in my heart. I love it. Watching it again now, I really enjoyed it. And it really felt like, uh, people talk about it as sort of like some kind of separate, like Tom Hanks had his mainstream career. Then he did this weirdly burbs kind of film, which didn't quite land because it was a bit too weird. And then he went off to doing acting. But for me, this feels, feels really, really like, almost like a capper on the 1980s obsession with suburbs. And you had it all the way through the 80s. You started off with like Poltergeist, you know, it was like, what if horror was in the suburbs? You had it in films like, um, I guess, Lost Boys, where you Lost Boys, it's like vampires in a little town, you know. In 1989, in the single year of 1989, you had the Burbs, Parents and Society all played on that thing about the suburbs and all ended up revealing that there was literal horror underneath the surface yeah i mean it was a trend I mean, monster monster squad as well um harry and the hendersons with bigfoot in the suburbs you know you had all these you had all these kind of like movies where i don't know america seemed obsessed with suburbanites at that point 
and that's where the burbs start, takes advantage of all of that, doesn't it? The burbs power, you know, the guy mowed his lawn for you know the one millionth time and lost it and went inside and killed his family. You know, it's just like that. Yeah, plays on the whole suburban paranoia. And this is this is stuff that the whole audience will will know whether whether you live in a place like that or not. Everybody will know somebody who who lived that lifestyle. So it's a great instant identifier for an audience. There was a few things that stood out to me. There was a really nice moment with Tom Hanks watching um, Mr. Rogers on the telly foreshadowing a role yeah, in the 30 years before he plays him he's he's even singing a beautiful day in the neighborhood yeah. you know which was was the title of the film later on so talking about this 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 business about tom hanks we were talking about and about the, the tone of the film and so on I, I i think it's brilliant how without giving any of the plot away because it's essential not to i think with the burbs but the the way the way the script dances through the movie, keeping the audience guessing about what's happening, and yeah. then Hanks's Hanks's speech at the end, where you're still surrounded by all of this comic activity and frantic activity going on, and you've got all the characters there, Corey Feldman and his mates on the sidelines laughing at it all. They're almost like an audience on screen, you know. They're great, and then you've got Bruce Dern and all the other guys, Rick Ducommon, uh, all all sort of involved in this farcical sort of activity. And Hanks delivers this speech five minutes from the end of the film that is just brilliant. That shows you the pathway that his career is going to go on from now on. You know, that's the Hanks of Captain Phillips, you know, in the last five minutes. And then the movie manages to have its cake and eat it as well. It's, it's, it's so, so clever. Well, it, it really is just genius how it keeps you guessing until the end. And it really, and you can, I mean, we can talk about the fact that it'll keep you guessing to the end. And no one, if you've not seen it, you'll never, I, I defy, you, you can have a guess at which way it's going to go. No way you know for sure. And, and as you say, the way it twists and turns right until the very, very end is so clever. And the, and the cast of, I'm a big fan of ensemble characters. I love loads of different characters and they're all kind of on a mission together. I love those type of films. And all the different characters, they should really, or they are in many ways, sort of two-dimensional stereotypes. But for some reason, they all work. They all have a heart. You kind of all know the motivation. You know where they're coming from. And well, that's I think that's the the basis of the suburbs. There's always that guy in the suburbs. There's always this guy in the suburbs. There's always that guy. Yeah, you know, and he plays on that, but but imbues them with art and purpose. I think he imbues them with purpose. Whether that purpose is a crazy purpose, as it is in this movie, it's like a huge nutter just stay in bed today. But you know, they they imbue them with such a purpose that their their eagerness to get the job done. It carries you along. As Daryl also said, uh, I think it was Daryl that made the point earlier that you can you can totally like the amount of times I've looked out of my window and kind of even during lockdown I was kind of dreaming away about making a remake of the Burbs set in lockdown. You know, well, but, especially when you was in lockdown, you can you can only go out your house once a day for exercise, and you got like neighbours going like he's been out twice today. He's been out, <laughs> twice, <laughs> been out twice today. <laughs> But the point is, is that it's so identifiable, even though it's set in the in the states. You know, you can really, you can see it. You know, you look down the street, what's your neighbour up to? It's that brilliant, um, you know, paranoia that everyone can understand. Let's move on to our to our next film, um, uh, The Great Outdoors. Now, an interesting choice, Tom. Uh, <laughs> um, it's not known as being one of the classics of nineteen eighty cinema, but it is and. I don't think people would say it's the it's the top film in either of the leads' films' careers. 
but it's a Dan Aykroyd, uh, John Candy vehicle. John Candy so vehicle, what's, what's so great about it? Yeah, what's so great about it, Dom? Come on. <laughs> well, it seems like, well, for a start, you just said it. John uh, Candy, Dan Aykroyd and Annette Benning. I mean, like, you know, I mean, that is an amazing lineup in any film, full stop, end of the story. But what it is with uh, Great Outdoors is I, com- I completely accept that it's not exactly a classic. But I defy anyone to watch this without a stupid smile on their face throughout. It's so much fun. It's, it's just throwaway summer. It's just, it's just the kind of definition for me of a kind of summer fun film. Um, exactly, you know, again, this sort of, uh, the five films I uh, chosen were kind of born from lockdown and, you know, films that I put on to cheer me up in the depths of lockdown. And this is absolutely one of them. I just think it's just so much fun. And, and I just, it, it, whenever I think of it, it just reminds me of the feeling of summer, as ridiculous as that might sound. Um, and um, it gen- I find it genuinely laugh out loud. The bit with uh, the bear, when, when John Candy runs back in the, back in the cabin and after, after the bears chase him and he can't get out the words he's trying to describe that this, I mean, it just absolutely murders me. It's just something about this film that just, it, it just cracks me up. I mean, I came for John Candy, uh, Dan Aykroyd and Annette Benning, but I stayed for the, the feel and the fun. And the, I just think the whole thing's great. Uh, and, and don't get me wrong. I don't, you know, I'm not trying to review it. I'm not trying to sort of argue for the cinematography or the writing or the, you know, or the, even the performances in a way. It's just, I feel like they're having fun and I feel like they kind of know what the film is and I think everyone's just trying to deliver a fun, you know, summer movie uh, to enjoy and not, not really overthink it. That, there's, my, there's my plight for The Great Outdoors. And it's also, it's not the most obvious choice. You know, people might not have seen it. No, it, is, it definitely feels like one that could have slipped through the cracks. I remember watching this as a kid and just having the... And just, just laughing my head off at the subtitled raccoons, um, <laughs> where they where they wrecking the bins and there were swear words on on, on the the raccoons. The raccoons are swearing, and it's like ten year old, twelve year old, whatever it was. If anyone's going to watch this film afterwards, there there is a a post credit raccoon scene as well. So yeah, don't miss it. Don't miss those foul mouth raccoons. <laughs> Telling part of the movie. You you came for John Candy. Dan Aykroyd and Annette Benning, you stayed for the foul mouth raccoons. <laughs> what stood out for me on this was it very much felt like a vehicle for John Candy. It was built around John Candy's dad figure. He played in like summer rental and things like that, where he's like the I just want it to be like you know, like Chevy Chase's vacation movies. It's that, that kind of a dad role that was knocking around in the 80s and people like John Candy, Chevy Chase were playing those roles. And I think it felt like, well, let's just get John to do that role again and we'll write some funny stuff around it. We'll get Dan in to do a character and um, we'll take it from there. Having said all that, Adam, it, it's always occurred to me about the film that there's, there's, I've, I've got this version in my head where Candy and Aykroyd swap roles. I think it could have been an interesting dynamic if they'd sort of played each other's parts. Yeah. I mean, because does Candy did play those like the unwanted welcome, the unwelcome house guest role, didn't he? Like yeah, Uncle yeah, Buck yeah. and things like that. You know, he where he turns up, he's like, oh no, <laughs> you know, he's here. And, and I, I think I think that evil brother financier sort of role that Aykroyd plays could have could have been played as a, if 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 Candy did it, it would shift the dynamic of that character. And I think the audience would actually be rooting for him to get away with the scheme. That is an interesting point. I mean. Um... 
I mean, I think people forget if they know the film, I think people forget that it was written by John Hughes, you know, famous from Breakfast Club to Home Alone, you know, one of the greatest writers, directors of all time. And he wrote, he loved Candy and would write for Candy and John Candy apparently would never, you know, if John Hughes wrote it for him, John Candy would do it. If I put that film on and I find I can watch comedies uh, quite often, I can, more than any other genre, I can repeat watch comedies. And I find that if I'm going to stick, if I'm in a, in a shitty mood and I put Great Outdoors on or I put The Burbs on, when it's finished, I'm in a better mood. And that is like, what more can I want from a film? You know? and, it, and don't get me wrong, it's like, uh, you know, the, the, the film schools aren't going to be teaching the great, <laughs> the great Outdoors to the next generation of film students, nor should they. But that's, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with uh, chewing gum for the eyes, mainstream mm-hmm. humor, uh, you know, mainstream yeah. Just, it's fun it's cheap it's cheap um uh, escapism ultimately and at, at a t- time like lockdown you know it's definitely been a time where i feel like films tv music's been appreciated in a whole nother level because people have just appreciated that hour half an hour a couple of hours just escapism from reality you know which which can perfectly provide you know what i mean yeah i'm not sure about that myself I found myself watching the films I've watched 50 million times before over and over again during the lockdown period. I don't feel like I've discovered anything new during lockdown. No, totally. But you're a film fan before lockdown. But did you find that by watching those films you've seen loads before that it gave you comfort or made you feel better or cheered you up? Yeah, absolutely. I don't think it made me discover anything new that I didn't know about them, though, before. Oh, no, I agree. I wasn't... I didn't mean to... If if that's how it came across... No, 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 I'm just saying, yeah, it's just... it's, It's just one of those things where it's just like, We've got all this time indoors, and what do we do? We watch Back to the Future again. <laughs> it's, it's, it's really depressing. No, but I do think some people appreciated film, not us, because we're film fans, but I, you know, I, I know quite a lot of my friends have kind of looked at films in a different way after the last few months, genuinely, because they're like, Christ, I really was shocked at how much comfort I took from, you know, my favourite film on my shelf, when things were really dark and... You know, I just stuck my favourite film on and it made me feel better. And they kind of appreciated films from a different level. I mean, I'm not saying everybody had some profound epiphany about films of the same, but I'm just saying it's nice that, you know, having film, having an old movie there, like The Great Outdoors, is like an old mate. It's like catching up with an old mate when you put it on. I think I think it's an interesting one from a John Hughes point of view, because it's like it kind of straddles that John Hughes writing and directing teen dramas to John Hughes writing Home Alone, and those style of um, family movies that he moved into in the early 90s. He's on this one as writer and producer, but not as director, so he's not sort of hands-on as, as, as such with this. I wonder why he didn't direct this. Well, how, Howard Deutsch directed it, didn't he? He was sort of yeah. his, his, his partner in crime. And uh, maybe maybe he saw it as... I mean, I think there was there was a, a very definite, a, like a type of John Hughes movie. You know, there was a particular type of film that he was known for and this this doesn't quite fit that this is a bit different i think yeah true it's got, yeah. In, it's got a different situation it's a little bit broader and yeah i'm sure he had a lot of fun writing the script and you, you sort of wonder when, when he got to the end of it did he sort of sit down reread it and think well i've done the script you know but is this a john hughes movie yeah so maybe that was it. Maybe John Hughes, if he wrote something and he was like, well, this is good enough to be made, but it's not good enough for me. Well, to- it's, it's not a John Hughes. It, it doesn't fit the Hughes brand sort of thing, which was very definitely a brand at the time, you know. Well, um, what else stood out from this before we move on to our next film for you, Dale? Anything stand out particularly? 
as Dom says, I uh, um, I appreciated uh, the, the the broad comedy and the way it was played. One one thing I would mention is um, the difficulties in filmmaking of when you've got a very very distinctive actor like John Candy, but he's also involved in doing a lot of physical comedy, and this goes right back to the days of silent comedy and early sound comedy with people like Laurel and Hardy. You know, is you've got a big guy there but he's doing he's, he's he's involved in a lot of sort of violent and strenuous activity you know and i think the 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 stunt people or stunt guy that they've got in to to sort of do all of his stunt work is an incredible match you can you can hardly see the join you know and uh, so i think that that deserves a bit of a mention whether whether the fact that i was impressed by that means that i wasn't watching the movie carefully enough or the film hadn't grabbed me enough you know i'm looking for things in the background like that i don't know but uh, but yeah it's amiable enough as as dom says it, it entertains you for 90 minutes and at, at the end of the day that's 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 worth a ton of oscars yeah, I mean, I, I really enjoy it. A few things that I'm, I'm going to be Mr. Mr. Raining on People's Parade thing now, aren't I? I've got three things about it. One, I didn't feel that Dan Aykroyd and John Candy made a good duo. As, as I say, I think I'd swap their roles and it might work. I felt, I felt like they were operating on different acting styles. John Candy's very naturalistic. Dan Aykroyd was very much like, I'm playing a character, kind of over the top a little bit. As Dan Aykroyd... I'd want to do in the 80s in certain roles he'd just like he'd be feel like he was playing a character rather than being a natural comedic performance but do you think if that was a character actor somebody you didn't know doing exactly the same performance it would you would find it as jarring you see what i mean do you think that because you know dan Aykroyd's kind of default tone and he was obviously playing a character um do you think it was him going OTT or do you think it was a little jarring because you kind of know who Dan Aykroyd is? It's hard to say really isn't it until you until you see it I think with Dan Aykroyd when you see him in like Ghostbusters playing Ray it's a grounded comedic performance but when you see him in something like this or you see him in um, even like something like Trading Places where it feels very much like a character he's playing Yeah, yeah. This, this is almost like you've, you've got a, a, a known comedy performer in a comedy film, playing a role that's not necessarily been written as a comedy part. Mm. Yes. Is, is the fault with the script there with that particular yeah, maybe. character? I mean, he's the Tommy Lee Jones to the Will Smith, isn't he? He's the, uh, you know, he's, he is playing the straight guy. But for yeah. me, see, I, I, I love uh, Ackwood's characters. You know, I love Trading Places, Loose Cannons. Um, you know, I love him when he plays those characters. And I actually buy it. I actually genuinely buy it. But equally, I, could, I can see Adam's point. I mean, I can, I don't... You know, I don't agree with it, but I can absolutely understand it. You know, I could see how that would jar you. You know what I mean? It's like, because uh, he does, he goes for it. He's one of those actors that goes for it. And that can be, it, people love it or that it can jar them. Like, you can go kind of either way. But equally, with all that said, his, his my favourite Ackroyd is the kind of Ghostbusters default Ackroyd. You know mm. what I mean? This felt more like um, his sort of like Saturday Night Live, like him playing a sketch. It was like that kind of thing, which was fine, but it jarred with John Candy, who was so effortlessly naturalistic as the dad in this role. It, it, for me, it kind of jarred. Not, not to the point where I was like, I can't watch this, turn it off. Um, but it, it did jar for me. The other thing that really occurred to me was like, isn't it a shame that Annette Benning, after this, did the grifters so quickly afterwards? And it kind of set the mould for a career. 
because she's a great comedy actress and the grift has hit and then it was all dramatic roles after that. And it's just, and she didn't come back to comedy until like Mars Attack in like in 96 or something like that. It's a real shame. Oh, Annette Benning is just, I just worship that. Oh, I think she's so, so, so good. I totally agree. It would have been really good fun to see her having a bit more fun in her roles. I think at the time, you think moving over into dramatic roles was obviously the more lucrative and more um, building a long-term career for. So I think all comedy actresses tended to want to move into drama, didn't they? Well, especially for a woman as well, I think, because, you know, I mean, it's difficult making headway as a, a comedy performer anyway. And, and uh, you know, at the, that time, how, how, many, how many female comics and female comic actors were there? You, you couldn't really sustain a career like that, I don't think. So, yeah, mm. I, th- I think she was canny enough to, uh, to um, uh, sort of get out of that. But she's great here. Yeah, she is. She is great here. Yeah, it really stood out. I think. Okay, let's move on to our next film. And talking about actors who we wish to do more comedy, we'll move on to directors who were potentially not known for comedy, but end up doing a comedy anyway. We're going to move on to Brewster's Millions, directed by westerns action director Walter Hill, in his only comedy in his career. Uh, so, what made you choose Brewster's Millions, Dom? Well, first of all. I, I mean, Richard Pryor. I mean, Richard Pryor. I mean, oh, my God. He is just... There has never been a presence comparable to him. I, I don't know if there ever will be. He is just one of the most naturally funny... I'm I'm obsessed with his, his two main comedy albums on Sunset. And, and um, so I, I, I've read his book. I'm just a huge, huge, huge Pryor fan. I mean, obviously, see no evil, hear no evil's a riot. I mean, you know, he has he he definitely from his book definitely considered himself as a stand-up first, and the acting kind of, you know, the acting. I don't think he had a real passion for it, but I just think that this film as a whole is it's actually a really clever concept. Uh, well, he's left three hundred million if he if he can spend thirty million in thirty days. And bear in mind, this is mid eighties, so you know he had he had to spend thirty million in thirty days and have nothing to show for it. And he can't tell anyone that's what he's doing. And of course, John Candy is in it, which is a bonus to anything. You've even got my, you know, again, Rick Moranis, who I would crawl over broken glass to work with. Um, you know, it's got an incredible cast. Um, it's so much fun, such a clever concept. But also, actually, what this does, if you do want to sort of scratch the surface, is it's a very kind of clever um, satire on what happens when you become rich and famous and the amount of leeches that will suddenly stick to you and how difficult and, and how even your closest friends can get distracted and how your closest friends are the ones you do need to listen to and stick to because they're the ones who ultimately are going to have your best interests at heart. They're not fair weather friends. And it's, 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 it's a great premise and, and proven so because this is the seventh adaptation of the novel, this, this film. I've seen I, what I thought was the original, the black and white. I've seen, I've seen the other one, the black and white. Oh, there's... There's loads, loads of history on this, Tom. Uh, the book was written in 1902 by George Barr McCutcheon, so it's 118 years old. And Cecil B. DeMille made the very first version of it in about 1914, 1915. Roscoe Arbuckle, I don't know if we're allowed to still call him Fatty Arbuckle. Fatty Arbuckle, I've read, he's a brilliant... Talk about uh, big, fat guys who could do incredible stuff. 
Indeed. Uh, he did a version in the 20s. They, they, did, they did a switch. They did a female version called Miss Brewster's Millions in, um, in the 30s with the B.B. Daniels. There, there was a British version in the 30s. There's, there have been a load of Indian and Chinese versions fairly recently. The one that you may be referring to, the most famous one before Walter Hills, is um, directed by Alan Dwan in the 1940s with uh, Dennis O'Keefe. The reason why stories are filmed over and over again is that certain stories appeal to each generation and have a meaning to each new, you know, set of people coming along. So uh, every generation's got their own version of this story. And it's almost like overdue for another remake because, you know, we're living in times where everyone talks about the 1% and the 99% now. Isn't it time for another big budget Brewster's Million? Mm. I mean, I really think it is. And I've thought so for a little while now. It's, a- it's absolutely hilarious and it's so much fun, but it's actually got a real heart to it. I think I yeah. am very good at that because... He'd had such a hard life and he had like yeah. those heartbreak just beneath the surface of Pryor. Mm. And a lot, a lot of his comedy comes out of that, comes out of uh, having come up from nothing. And he's got a social conscience as well. And, yeah, um, he really does. And an understanding. And, no, you know, the more you know his story, the more you can see it. You can see it in his eyes, you know. Which yeah. I- yeah, they tried to make him sort of like, like Eddie Murphy. Um, because of the, the stand-up crossover, that kind of stuff. But by this point, Murphy had come along and, and had almost sort of usurped Pryor and was they were sort of battling for the crown at the time, you know. I think I think the problem with it is, is Eddie Murphy is much easier to capture in a film. He's that brash sort of like whereas like you say, Richard Pryor, he's got that subtlety in his performance. He's, there's a vulnerability just underneath the, 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 the facade that he puts forward, and it's just always there. That suits the character of Brewster, though. I Absolutely. Think, yeah. And again, as you say, uh, you know, John Candy has something very similar. He, has, he can flick between very sincere, as we just discussed. And, and I think you put the pair of them together and they re- they're, they're viable as two, you know, rough, tough guys coming from no luck whatsoever and suddenly being thrown into the middle of this chaos. I mean, you know, Brewster's Millions, actually, the more you kind of overthink it, the more it gives you, actually. The more you kind of it and scratch the surface, the more that's there. It's actually a really, really clever, brilliant movie. But and and this this version's being made in in Reagan's America as well. So so it's very very sort of timely. Dom, I think I think there's one point in the story that you mentioned. I I think is the thing that gives Brewster's millions. It's it's real core. The plot idea is great. You know, um, spend spend a million dollars or thirty million, depending on based on inflation. You know, however much it is at any particular time, and make a lot of money. I think the real core of the story is the fact that the character is not allowed to tell anyone, and the drama that comes out of that. And, and suddenly, it's not a comedy anymore because you've got people reacting to Brewster in a way. As though they're they're saying, why are you doing this? What what are you doing this for? You know, can you explain your actions? And he's a character who's sort of stalked. He, he's he's not allowed to say, and he gets so frustrated by that. It's the chemistry between Candy and um and and Pryor, and um I love that. You know, it's, it does really give it a heart, and it, does, it seriously interferes with the comedy, but it enhances it. You know, it enhances the story, it enhances the plot. I mean, again, it's kind of on the surface, it's kind of a throwaway '80s fun comedy. But the more you scratch, the more you can see that it, there's there's quite a lot to it. Yeah. What what this version does is it really draws battle lines. I think you know, there there, there as you say, there's the group of people who 
sort of surround prior and uh, uh even though they don't understand what he's doing you know they want to help brewster and then there there's like the guys on the other side who are scheming against him and there seems to be no middle ground you know it is that you've got these very clearly drawn battle lines and i think that defines any any film about money and about finance that 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 achieves that is is sort of telling the story in the right way because I I think that's how money works in real life you know you've you've either got people who want to help you with your your cash or you've got people who want to take it away from you. Well, it's the same with anything, any sort of success, isn't it? But but I've got to be honest. When I put it on in lockdown, all these very valid points that we're making were not the forefront of my mind. I just wanted to sit and and let Richard Pryor make me laugh my ass off. So much fun! It's just so much fun. The whole thing's great. See, I, I got a different thing. I, I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. But I don't think I laughed my ass off at all. I, I oh, really, really enjoyed watching it. But I didn't find any of it laugh out loud funny. I just found it full of heart, full of charm. Um, I thought Richard Pryor was a great lead in this, and it had some amusing moments throughout the film. But I don't think it ever really hit the hammer hit the nail on the head for the gags for me it was always just quite slightly not quite on the on the mark i'm going to take the middle ground here and say i i can understand these this difference of opinion there because for me i think the comedy arises from the situations it's like um one of my one of my favorite comedy elements of the film is the whole political campaign and prior mm. trying to get everyone to vote for none of the above, which is <laughs> I, I think that's hilarious and I think it works so well in the film, but it, it it's also making serious social and political points as well. So uh, so you you do get that aspect where on one hand it's it's a really really funny sort of strand of the movie, but. The, an individual viewer could look at that and 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 want to take it seriously and want to look at the the sort of satirical and social aspects of it rather than laughing at it. You know? And I think you can do both here. And I mm. think where the film succeeds is is in straddling that line between comedy and between its message. And well, that's that's a re- I mean, that's a really good point. And you, you know, I think if you did remake it today, it's probably it'd probably be quite shocking at how little you'd have to change because. Yeah. That you know couldn't be much more relevant today than vote for none of the above, could it? I mean, mm, it's sure. uh, the whole political campaign, the whole capitalism commentary of it is is extremely poignant, clever, and very very relevant. And and I and I think um, I think you know I, I kind of agree with you both as well. I mean, I did laugh. You know, it does make me laugh out loud. But equally, I totally agree with Adam in that it's full of heart and charm. And I totally agree with, agree with Daryl that its social commentary is cutting sharp and extremely well observed. And and I think the fact that Walter Hill directed it who's i mean you only have to look down his imdb i mean he's you know he's not known i think i think, I think this is the only certainly the only comedy i'm aware of that well he'd just done 48 hours with Eddie oh, which, is and Nick comedy, Nolte, yes. which is more of a drama more of a thriller action thing with comedy bits in it so they thought okay well maybe you can move over i think 48 hours is very much a walter hill movie though and this, and this mm. isn't Hill, I, I, there's actually some quotes from from Hill online where he's he sees this film as what the way he describes it is it's an aberration in the career line. So he sees it as a film that stands out. I I gather what happened is he he'd, he'd got another film that he wanted to make uh, that that fell through, and um and and he was sort of then hired to do this one. I think he was working on the Dick Tracy movie, wasn't he? Yeah, that's right. And that that's fell right. through. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. But but then you you wonder would the Dick Tracy film have been a typical Walter Hill 
approach to that character, gritty and hard-boiled, or would it have lent more towards the way that Warren Beatty did it a few years later, you know? Walter, Walter Hill's a bit like John Carpenter in this respect, because I've heard Carpenter say this as well. Walter Hill has said, all of my films are Westerns. And he said, and the, re the, reason, the reason I like making Westerns, and he, and he said, you know, whatever the setting, whatever the era, whether it's a Western with car chasers, whether it's a Western with detectives, I see all my movies as essentially having the plot of a Western. And he said, I like simplicity. I like, I like the, the simple black hat, white hat plot of a Western, you know. And, um, but he said that by the mid 80s, Hollywood wasn't doing that anymore. And so the films that he was suggesting that he wanted to make were getting turned down. And then, as you say, the Dick Tracy thing fell through. And I think it was just, well, I, I, I need a film, you know, and, and this, this one was offered to him. Another quote from Hill on this, um, this is one that he applies generally to his career, is he says, my idea of a good movie is to take very clearly defined characters and put them in the highest possible jeopardy and then see what happens. And you can apply that to Driver and you can apply that to The Warriors and 48 Hours and Southern Comfort. But I think that's that's what Brewster's Millions might have in common with the rest of his films, is I think that fits. It's a very 80s movie in that respect, that high concept idea that the 80s seem to do really well. What if we build a time machine out of a car? What if we, you know, all these sort of like really high concept ideas that sometimes were mega hits and sometimes were mega burnouts. The, uh, I mean, speaking of the Jeopardy you just mentioned, Dow, I think that's a really interesting point because the, uh, and again, I'm not going to give it away for anyone who might, want to go and check this out who hasn't seen it from listening to the podcast but the um the end of Brewster's Millions is climb the walls tent I mean it kills me every time it gets me every if you I would be amazed if you haven't invested in the characters by that point and if you've invested in the characters then the end of that film is just I mean it's a killer it's a killer and I think it's, it's one of the best endings one of my favorite endings I just think it's amazing so tense so let's move on to our next movie, uh, Let It Ride, which I felt, ironically, felt more like a Walter Hill movie than, than Bruce's Millions did. And particularly in the first 10, 15 minutes, I thought, is this, this is a, possibly, is this going to be like a, a gritty drama set in the world of, uh, of, uh, of, of Betty Track and, and, and what I'll do, hiding money in my shoes, that kind of stuff? Uh, is it going to be that kind of thing? Um, and it obviously developed from there. So Let It Ride. Um, feature debut of uh joe piketer Pike his second he's only done two films in his career this one and a film he did based on an advertisement campaign that he did called hair jordan which was spun off into a movie called space jam so he's mainly known for doing music videos and for doing uh adverts um, some of his famous videos where he did uh, The Way You Make Me Feel by Michael Jackson. Um, very famously did uh, Free as a Bird by the Beatles in the mid-90s when they released unreleased recordings. And he did that very beautiful video with all the Beatles references in. So we've got a pop video guy coming to the movies. Yeah, well, so Don, what, what was your thoughts behind this? Because interestingly enough, neither myself nor Daryl had seen this film prior 
to this podcast. Yeah, no, to us, yeah. Well, that that's exactly my point, right, is that Let It Ride is kind of my absolute ultimate go-to movie that I've never found anyone that's seen it, that I've recommended it to, ever. And um, it's one of those movies I used to love nothing more than, you know, <clears throat> sort of half 11, midnight, BBC One, and there'd just be a film that had come on and I'd sit and watch it no matter what it was. I've always struggled sleeping. I've always been a night owl. So, you know, a, a late film for me was just heaven. And I really, really wasn't bothered what it was. And if it was an 80s movie, then all the better. And, uh, and this is just one of those films that I happened to flick on the TV and just catch late at night. And then it just, I loved it so much that I bought it on DVD. And ever since I've kind of taken the DVD round to friends' houses and recommended it to friends and just no one's ever seen it. And, and I saw it purely by accident. But I think the cast, I mean, obviously you've got Richard Dreyfus, who I just absolutely love, on the back of, uh, you know, Close Encounters and Jaws and, you know, back in his sort of leading man period. Well, that's, that's an interesting thing, because it was actually, this period was actually a comeback period for Dreyfus. because oh, he checked into Yeah, he checked into rehab in about 82 and didn't do a film for three or four years while he was trying to kick, kick a cocaine habit. And he came back with Down Night in Beverly Hills in 86 and then did Stakeout in 87 and was back on sort of like leading man trajectory. Um, and this was his, his 1989 movie. So. Yeah, I, I, th- I, think he's in, I think he's in great form in this period, you know, because he, he'd shown in the late 70s that he could really carry a film because he's not a conventional leading man by any means, you know. But yet he'd already proven that he, he, he could carry a big, big, big movie. And he's back at the end of the decade, the end of the 80s, and he does this. And then in the early 90s, what about Bob and um, and my, my favourite, which is my very favourite Steven Spielberg movie, um, always in the same year, 89. And he's, he's, on a, he's on a real roll at that point, you know. And, uh... Yeah, again, I'm a huge, uh, huge Dreyfus fan. But, but the, the, the film's actually based on a book, which I hadn't realised. And um, so you've got this um, huge kind of uh, cast of ensemble of characters and it's based on a, a, it's a racetrack. So you've got, you know, um, half the character actors that from the 80s feature in the movie, all on top form, all with kind of what you feel are fully formed characters, which I am assuming is informed from the book. I've, I've never read the book. And, um, and you kind of go on this ridiculous adventure. And it also, I've, I'm all, I'm a lot, I like films that take place over like one day or one night. So you're kind of in there with them for the, for the you know, for the foreseeable. And, um, and this takes place over one day at the racetrack, effectively. And by the end of it, I mean, I, I, um, I know our, um, before we started recording, you mentioned uh, Robbie Coltrane's in this movie. And his character is very much, we see the movie through Coltrane's eyes in many yeah, ways. Yeah. And he starts off as this, who is this idiot, degenerate gambler, as Richard Dreyfus has come. And by the end of the film, Robbie Coltrane, like us, is so damned invested in, in yeah he's he's rooting for the guy yeah yeah you know, you're so you've just been completely drawn in and and the moments where he goes into the the clubhouse where all the rich you know heavy hitters uh, heavy gamblers sit and the whole thing is just this ridiculous kind of adventure around the racetrack and by the end of it you're so much like Brewster's Millions you're so engaged and you so care about this the, the man's plight and for me the whole movie. Like the what makes this film so rewatchable for me is the ending. Um, it's I love. I'm obviously not going to reveal what happens, but I love what happens so much. And I and I it genuinely I couldn't guess it. I wasn't sure which way it was going to go. I didn't know how it was going to play out. You know, I was I was just. 
but it had it had the balls to go through with its conviction and you know and and there's just it's just so much fun and there's you know there's so much going on and you really believe in the world that it creates it's a great world building film i also uh stole something that he does and i've always done it myself since where he sits there and works out the maths of what people make, you know, he goes, well, if he makes, you know, $6 an hour, seven hours, and he just figures out, you know, there's that kind of a really fun little mini subplot that goes throughout. And I've picked that up and I do that sort of subconsciously ever since. I just think it's a great movie that, that genuinely I've never met anyone who's seen the thing. So, so I'll be fascinated. So what, what I've been talking too much. What, what do you guys think? Did you enjoy it? Daryl, do you want to start? <laughs> yeah, I will do. I, I, the first thing I'll say is I, th- I think it really does fit in thematically alongside Brewster's Millions. As, yeah, as you definitely. Um, but all, also with the burbs, in a sense, um, I think the Brewster's Millions connection is obvious because, um, you know, it's about money. It's about a guy who's, who's got nothing, who suddenly gets the chance to get rich, you know, and about his struggles doing that. Um but, um, I mean, you're talking about the ending of the film, and um, it's similar to The Burbs in that respect, in that both films have got one, they've, they've got options at the ending, and you cannot guess which one's going to happen in either case. Yeah. But in both movies, the lead character gives a big, big speech about five or ten minutes from the end of the film that defines what his character is all about and what the film's actually all about. And Dreyfus in this movie doesn't know whether he's going to win or lose, but he does this big speech about what a great day he's had and how he's, he's been at the jockey club and he's been drinking and he's met loads of new people. And it's like the, the, last, the last 10 minutes of the film almost don't matter. After that speech, we almost don't need to know what happens because he's he's already told us that he's had a fantastic day win or lose i do agree with that daryl however it does do that 80s thing where the ultimate goal of most movies about money in the 80s is about making money and that's the ultimate goal for a lot of characters in the 80s is about making money whether that's wall street evil greed is good or whether that's the underdog you know the only thing that will make my life better is a million dollars that's a very very 80s storyline because i think in the 90s you started having things well you have the storyline where it's like is money the thing that's going to make your life better and nine times out of ten in films it wasn't whereas in the 80s nine times out of ten the money is the goal yeah i I, I think that's that's my point though adam my point is that Dreyfus having this little conversation near the end of the film sort of neuters that a little bit, you know, and it, it, it sort of says, okay, the, the ending of this film doesn't matter. What the film's about is this character's found himself. He's, he's, he's won more than money, you know. He's, he's, he's had a brilliant day and he's learned something about himself and learned something about his life. I love the structure of the film. I love the fact that, um, again, um, and this relates both to the Burbs and to Brewster's Millions as well. You've got, as Dom says, it's all set on one day. And aside from the scenes where Dreyfus is actually putting his bets on with Robbie Coltrane, the scenes either take place in the jockey club in this rarefied environment where everyone's drinking champagne and they're throwing money around like confetti, or it takes place in this little local dive. There's this shady bar 
where there are these sort of Cheers-like characters in there, you know, and uh, they all know each other and um, and they all know Dreyfus and none of them respect him, you know. Um, and uh, it's, it's, it's this great sort of either-or sort of situation, haves and have-nots sort of thing. And Richard Dreyfus's character can skip between one world and the other. Yeah, yeah. You see, for me, I think thematically... I understand what you mean, Adam, about the pursuit of uh, wealth. And I do totally agree that it's many 80s films are themed that way. But for me, from a thematic point of view, this film's about the little guy daring to enter the world of those, you know, of those above him. Yeah, yeah. How unwelcome they make him feel and how they patronise him and look down on him. And ultimately he sits in their world and he's like, I don't care. You know, and then he learns that this world that he's been aspiring to get into actually all that and he's probably happier and more comfortable back in you know where he's from and you know the whole kind of classic grass is greener thing but it's um but i think it's an interesting sort of look at like class in a sense i think it's quite i think it's a quite you know obvious theme of the film and i think it's a really fascinating look at it but equally what's what's fascinating is that uh, there's a moment in the film where while while um dreyfus is in the dive bar he, he kind of goes, right, he kind of rallies the troops and he's going, right, guys, because they're all going, you know, how are you doing it? He's, he's on this, the, the sort of loose plot of the story is that he's on this winning streak. Yeah, he's on a roll, um, yeah. And he's like, right, guys, here's what we're going to do. You know, you guys are jealous. This isn't, now I'm paraphrasing, but you guys are jealous of my winning streak. This is what we're going to do. We're all going to put our money in one pot. And everyone's like, yeah, we're all going to pull together. We're all going to come together and like, yeah. And then we're all going to bet together. And everyone's like, no, I'm going to bet on my own thing. And it's kind of that great kind of metaphor of like, you know, if everyone worked together, maybe you could rise up as one, whereas you can't rally the troops in that way. Everyone's kind of fighting for their own little piece of the pie. Yeah, when, when it comes right down to it, they don't all know. Yeah, but, yeah. but equally, and this probably says something about my shallowness, is whilst you have this beautiful kind of speech, this great speech where it's like, I don't care. I've had a wonderful day. You know, I've experienced the jockey club and realised maybe that isn't for me. I don't really, you know, like that thing that I was aspiring to. I'm not necessarily aspiring to that now. I, I love my wife. I, you know, he's had all these kind of epiphanies, but I still need to know the end. I, <laughs> I'm too shallow. I have to know the end of the film. You know, I have to. I wasn't prepared to let it finish with ten. Well, there, there has there has to be an ending. You know, you 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 can't you can't end a film on a big speech like that. When you've set the plot up, you know, you've you've got to finish this story off, haven't you? It just wouldn't balance. I really cared, Daryl. I, I can't lie to you. I really, really cared about what. For for me, I get what I want out of this movie. 10 minutes before the finish but you're you're absolutely right you know so a lot of audiences would need to know how it comes out every film needs an ending so uh yeah yeah it's it's valid that it carries on well the first 10 minutes i just thought oh, i hate this film i hate this film this is rubbish what it got me i must admit it got me i mean and literally as, as i was watching it along and i was trying to binge watch as many of these movies in a, in a week as I can to try and, try and get through this podcast. But I'm watching it, so I'm, you know, I'm having to think, well, can I skip some of this? Can I move on? Can I get enough from this to... to uh, and I just felt like I've been drawn into it. By the time I was like halfway through the movie, I'm like, no, I'm, I'm enjoying this now. I'm into this now. For that first 10 minutes, I just thought, well, I'm not sure about this. It feels like, I don't know, do I want to hear it? It's some like desperate gambler. <laughs> and one, I think maybe one of the things about it is like, I've never seen, in, personally, I've never seen the appeal of gambling. I don't gamble, and not, not in, a, in a puritanical kind of way, but you said that I don't get what the buzz is from gambling. I think that's what it is. So ultimately, it's kind of like an, an alien 
emotion for me, you know. Do do films about gambling not work in a sort of vicarious way for you, though, Adam? Not particularly, no. You know, you, you, I'm, I'm sure you don't go out every weekend uh, shooting guns at people, but you love you love watching films. You don't know what I do on my weekends, Daryl. <laughs> <laughs> I just wonder, you know, is is it not great to watch fictional characters gamble? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it does. But but I think a lot. It's the same. It's like, what's the point in the movie? They say, can the horses just run round? It's like, well. The horses running around is nothing. It's the gambling <laughs> on the horses running around is, is is the whole thing. I guess it's like me, like watching horse racing. If I'm not betting on it, then I guess there's, there's, there's nothing there. But I don't get the buzz from betting. So I, I did enjoy it. I got into the characters. I enjoyed it with them, with just the wealth of faces. I'm like, oh, that's Thingy. That's that's David Johansson. That's Mary Warrenoff. Oh, that's Jennifer Tilly in a very early role. Oh, there's Cynthia Nixon in a very early role. It was like, oh, there's Alan Garfield. Boom. And it was just like one after the other of all these recognisable faces. I always love it when mainstream Hollywood, big studio Hollywood, can cast a big star like Richard Dreyfuss and have a supporting cast with people like the wonderful Terry Gar in it and so on. And then your sort of second string characters, your supporting characters, are all from this murky 70s underground, you know. I absolutely <laughs> love that. It was a joy for me watching this film, seeing David Johansson, who I, I know, you know, you guys are younger than me, and you, you, you probably think of him first as being the cab driver in Scrooge. For me... I know, I know him best as the lead singer of the New York Dolls in the 70s. Um, you know, one of the great pioneers of punk rock. But this movie is great for this sort of casting. And again, you know, is this film essentially a comedy or does does it work? As as you said earlier on, Adam, you were suggesting, you know, it's it's got that sort of gritty 90s crime movie vibe to it. You know, mm. it could easily have been made five years later, post-Reservoir Dogs, as a straight racetrack thriller, you know. Yeah, I think I think mid nineties you swap out Richard Dreyfus for Steve Buscemi and you're you're running, aren't you? You know, it's not it's not that much different to some of the stuff Buscemi was doing in the uh, mid to exactly. late nineties. I guess really it's a comedy drama in many sense. Yeah, know? yeah. Uh, it's definitely not well, it is daft, but it's um but within the world, it seems completely believable. You know, it's within it within the context of the world that it builds, it feels very real. Yeah, I think I think the importance of the elements of, of the plot that are happening to those characters, they they believe they're important. They believe that they're, they're life or death kind of situations. So the ridiculousness of their reactions is valid. And it is a microcosmic film. As Dom says, it's, it's, it's all set in one day, but it's a bit like The Burbs again. You know, The Burbs is all set on this one, this one cul-de-sac, this one suburban estate, you know, and yet it's, it's, a, it's a global movie. You know, it's, it's, this, this story could be happening to anyone, you know. And, and with this film, it's all set in this confined time, time uh, zone of, of a sort of day and a night, you know, but... It's it, it's telling a, a much broader it's it's telling a much broader human story. Well, let's move on to our, our next film, another film that um, explores the world of the haves and the have-nots, I guess, and social commentary with a light touch. Um, it's uh, Ruthless People. So, what's the deal with Ruthless People, Dom? How come we chose this one to round out our five? Well, um, Ruthless People, again, is a film that, you know, surprising amount of people haven't seen, considering how brilliant it is. And again, you know, the cast of characters. I mean, I'm a huge Danny DeVito fan. 
You can't love 80s movies without loving Judge Reinhold. You've got Bette Midler, who's just glorious and just brilliant and just, oh, she steals it. And then uh, even Helen Slater, of course, famous for Supergirl, who's, who I think is really strong in this movie. I think the genius of this movie is the, um, I, I, as the title suggests, the ruthless people element of it. It's, the plot is so funny and so clever and really dealt with incorrectly. There's no likable character at all when you consider what they're all up to. Basically, Danny DeVito, married to Bette Midler, can't stand her, is trying to um, divorce her. And uh, Judge Reinhold and Helen Slater, they kidnap Bette Midler and, uh, and try and hold her to ransom. But of course, Danny DeVito's over the moon that she's been kidnapped and does the opposite of what the kidnappers uh, ask him to do uh, in, in order to try and get her killed. <laughs> and then the chaos just ensues. You know, it's just, they, you know, there's specifically no press, no police. And the first thing he does is alert all the press, call the police. <laughs> And the whole thing blows up into this huge media event, and it, and 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 the, you know, the classic kind of seed of of, the, of some of the best comedy is, of course, the escalating lie, and it's never better exemplified than ruthless people in the escalating lie, just getting more and more and more out of hand, and and everyone's got cross wires, and it, the whole film's just brilliant chaos, but woven together so well paced brilliantly i think Bette midler actually steals the whole thing i think she's a genius in this movie and danny devito having a ball again i feel like all the cast are having loads of fun in this film and, it, and i think it works you can sort of look at it as being a really clever tightly wound comedy and equally you can just watch it and have fun and relax and smile and chuckle your way through it you know it works on both levels like hopefully all my five choices do yeah, I, I, I think this movie is an interesting one because, like, I think a lot of people involved with this film were very, very motivated. It was Danny DeVito's first leading role. You know, he'd been, he'd been in the uh, Romance in the Stone and Julian the Nile as a character. He'd done Taxi on TV. He'd done Wise Guys this same year as also a leading role. It's his first two leading roles. So he was motivated to become the star, you know, to headline the movie. Yeah, Bette Midler, who was moving from... She'd done movies before, but she was primarily known as a singer. And she, at this point in May 86, she started moving into movies with a much more like, okay, I'm going to do movies now. And she did like Outrageous, P, Outrageous Fortune, um, Big Business, and Beaches, which is a big hit for her. So she, in this three or four-year period, she'd moved into acting. So she was motivated. Yeah, Helen Slater, who'd done like three roles before this film, Full stop. She'd done one TV role. She did Supergirl and she did um, The Legend of Billie Jean with Christian Slater. And then she moved into this. So she's motivated. She's in the early stages of her career. Judge Reinhold's going into that period where he's wanting to get the leading man status as well, which he'll he'll do in Vice Versa in 1988. But he was on that role coming out of the supporting roles in Dan Lind's and Beverly Hills Cop into more leading roles as well. So you had a lot of people really, really wanting this to hit. And uh, I, think they, I think they're all great in it. I think they're all great in it. They're all pull their weight and more to help this deliver. And it's an interesting background as well. It's like directed by um, Jim Abrahams and the Zucker Brothers, who are pro- known for doing spoofs up to this point. And after this point, this is like a little blip in their career. Yeah, they're the guys that did Airplane, Top Secret. Yeah, Naked Gun, and then some of the scary movie movies and, and, and all manner of different spoofs. But this is like the one blip where this is not a spoof, this is a comedy. It's a 
comedy with quite a complicated plot and escalating lie, as you said. It's got all that kind of stuff in it. Um, so, yeah, it's an unusual choice for them as well, I think. Look, the other bit of background for this movie is that it marked or was part of a, a set of films that marked a, a real shift in in what films were. In terms of um, from the late 70s onwards, the Disney organisation had started to notice that um, their films were getting a bit of a reputation. You know, uh, there were certain audiences that didn't go and see them. They thought, oh, we, you know, we don't like Disney cartoons. They're too childish, you know, they're for kids, what have you. And they started shifting into territory where they were making films like The Black Hole and Tex and Something Wicked This Way Comes, where they were getting a little bit more edgy. And this this led them to actually set up Touchstone, which was their division, which was going to make adult films, you know, films aimed at an older audience. And uh, even even then, they started with, with films like Splash and things like that, which might have still had one foot in the old Disney, you know, but, uh, but so they'd got, they'd got this whole sort of separate brand name going, almost designed to make you think this isn't a Disney film, you know, and Ruthless People was, was a one, one of the sort of swathe of, of the first lot of films that they bought out in the mid eighties. The, the other thing that was going on in, in, in film at the time, and, and this, this was huge. This might not seem such a big deal today, but up to, up to the mid eighties, it seemed to audiences and critics and people that analysed cinema that actors either worked in TV or they worked in film. And suddenly we started getting this crossover happening. You were getting people like Christopher Lloyd, Shelley Long, Michael J. Fox, Danny DeVito actually starring in movies, getting the major roles. This this was like unheard of to audiences at the time. And it's so difficult to get that across now. What a shift that was, you know. But as as you said, Bette Midler, I think, steals the movie. And I think why she does, she's she's always been an actor who who has never she I mean, she she can be very glamorous, but she doesn't. She's a bit like Danny. She doesn't have to be, you know. She she doesn't necessarily need to be playing the, the the sort of beautiful lead character. She doesn't mind getting grubby and uh, um, you know looking a bit dowdy and uh, um, and and what this movie does again it gives her the best of both worlds because she plays this overweight shrill sort of uh, nagging wife character you know who he wants to be rid of but of course part of her character arc is that she has this makeover you know she well she 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 in 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 her, her kidnapped state you know uh she forces herself to to do sort of exercise programs and watch exercise videos and lose weight and then it turns out that helen slater's character is a budding fashion designer and she gets the wardrobe out and and they sort of bond you know and there's this whole sort of patty hearst thing going on and bet midler's got this this brilliant character there where she can she's playing this sort of rather drab sort of character overweight character um coming from a moneyed background having said that but she then glams up you know and and she she gets um to to play that whole range the writer did say it was inspired by the kidnapping of Patty Hearst, so, yeah. Yeah, you can see that, yeah. Bette Midler, for me, does steal it. And I think what it is, she starts off as this 
shrill, aggressive nightmare, you know, and she obviously and understandably um, gives her kidnappers such a hard time. But you as an audience kind of know the kidnappers and you kind of sympathize with them. And, you you know, so your your initial sympathies weirdly do lie with the people. It shouldn't, you know, in, in terms of the kidnappers. And, and um, but as you say, she goes on this amazing arc. And then there's this moment, which I think is a key moment in the film where, and, I, and I, we are sort of veering into spoiler territory, but I think it's worthy to chat about, is that there's this moment where she realises that, um, you know, that he doesn't, you know, that, you know, that he's perhaps not so keen to get her back. And, you, and she, she's heartbroken. She has this real moment of vulnerability. And because you've seen her play this super strong kind of mega bitch the whole time, who's not given an inch, and she took it, you know, she took it bravely and brilliantly. So that kind of endears you to her. And then she's gone on this mission to lose the weight, you know, working out while kidnapped. And so you're kind of slowly but surely being won over by her. But then the moment she's heart, that heartbreak moment she has, which is so sincere and genuine and perfectly acted. You're just like, oh, she's got me. I'm now, I'm with Bet. I want whatever, you know, I'm kind of, I want Bet to win kind of thing. You, you know, your sympathies are just 100% suddenly behind her. And the way the film kind of twists its perspective from, you know, Danny DeVito's, sort of perspective throughout the first half and then slowly transitions over to the perspective of Bette Midler and um, Judge Reinald and Helen Slater for the, for the finale is, is, is actually quite, it's very deftly directed and nicely written and it's quite brilliant. And, and, and also I, I, the other performance beat that I, I adore in this movie is uh, Danny DeVito's transition from tears to laughter to tears to laughter is just so brilliant and funny, so utterly ruthless <laughs> you know for want of a better word it's so good i mean it, you can as you as you both said you can just see the cast having a ball and we're totally you know we're totally willing to go along and have a ball with them you know it's just oh it's so much fun mm. and it's another being similar to i mean they've all got those various beats in the storyline i think judge reinhold's bit where he's trying to sell the speakers to the stupid young lad and he's like giving him the hard sell, and he's going to find him out. And we've already established that this 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 speaker is is just like crap, but we mark it up really expensive. And then in comes the guy's pregnant wife, and he just goes, "Oh, I can't, I can't do it. I can't be a ruthless person." And he's just like, "Okay, there we go. That's another like, little tick. We're on this side now. You know, it, it's it's a nice moment, and similar to the the Bette Midler moment. As well. None of it seems for. You know, no, it all plays very naturally and it flows and everyone's within character. And what you've got here again, it's another comedy where you've got actors giving what what any any analyst or critic or viewer would recognise as being a genuine performance. Mm. You know, you, you can you can see the acting, which is the reason why a lot of comedy doesn't get recognition, I think, is because the performers are so gifted. You, you almost judge them as a comedian rather than as an actor. And here, I, I think, I think they, they, they pitch it at a level where they're giving performances that people would recognise as performances. It's not just comedy shtick, you know, great though that is when, when someone can really nail it, but you've actually got actors here, you know, working in a comedy film. Mm. Yeah, I think that's that's a really fair point. I think it was brilliantly cast as well. I mean, Helen Slater and uh, Judge Reinald are two very, very naturally likeable people. Their presence on the screen is really naturally likeable. Slater's coming off the back of Supergirl, so she's had this. She's her, her career has almost stalled before it started because she got such a panning mm. on that movie. Yeah, and and she's almost had to restart again with this, and 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 she's she's great in it. I think that again. 
in terms of just enjoyable presence on screen, Judge Reinhold is so much fun. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, I, I loved this movie. I loved it, loved it, loved it. And it's like, when when when, when you sent me this list of five films um, over various different conversations and, and texts <laughs> and phone calls, where we nailed down the five, but, you know, it's fine. Um, uh, when you finally sent me the finalised list, I thought The Burbs was going to be above all of these. When I watched it, I thought, okay, well, The Burbs is the one... That's everyone's going to agree. And, and after I finished watching him, I thought, actually, I think Ruthless People really stands out for me as the one. It's brilliant. Maybe it's more because it's brilliantly scripted. And that's what I really respond to in these kind of movies. And the, the guy who wrote this also wrote My Cousin Vinny. Which is oh, wow. Brilliant. Amazing. He wrote Dirty Rotten Scoundrels and Blind Dates as well. You know, he had a, he had, this was the start of a run of three or four movies there where it was that specifically well-plotted comedic uh, scripts that he was making it where it's like like Daryl said it, it responds better to comedy performances rather than comedians I think these these roles tended to be better played by actors who do comedy rather than comedians who are doing films and um, yeah and this one yeah, it's so great. It's 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 so much fun. I mean, you know me, I could pick 55 movies, <laughs> never mind five. But So it's a tough choice, but I think these are five fun movies. And um, I've definitely learned today that um, previous to this podcast, I thought I was a film fan. Now I realise I'm an amateur compared to you, Pear. Well, you say you say that, but you, you brought a film that neither me or Daryl had seen. Oh, sure. That's fine for me, but Daryl hadn't seen this either, John. <laughs> Daryl hadn't seen this. So. That, that is, well, I think the pair of you, are, you know, I mean, you're definitely two guys that I look to look up to in terms of film knowledge. So it was, I'm glad that I not only managed to find one you hadn't seen, but one that you, you know, seem to enjoy. So that, that's the result. I'll take that away from this, definitely. <laughs> cool, lovely. Well, I'm sure we'll, maybe we'll get back together in a year or so and you're giving five more of you his films and we'll do another do another podcast well i'm sorry if i've waffled on boys but i've really enjoyed it thanks thanks for inviting me on great pleasure to chat to you both yeah thanks tom cool yes thank you dom uh thank you daryl we will be back in a couple of weeks time uh, i think we're looking at maybe doing something on well who knows we've uh, we've got a few in the pipeline going forward so we will join you guys again soon uh once again i want to thank quad and the bfi for supporting this podcast and we will speak to you again next week. Okay.